agony of Christ in the garden. Taken from Luke 22, verse 44. In being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in his original nature, was infinitely above all suffering, for he was God over all blessed forevermore. But when he became man, he was not only capable of suffering, but partook of that nature that is remarkably feeble and exposed to suffering. The human nature, on account of its weakness, is in scripture compared to the grass of the field, which easily withers and decays. So it is compared to a leaf, and to the dry stubble, and to a blast of wind, and the nature of feeble man is said to be but dust and ashes, to have its foundation in the dust and to be crushed before the moth. It was this nature, with all its weakness and exposedness to sufferings, which Christ, who is the Lord God omnipotent, took upon himself. He did not take the human nature on him in its first, most perfect and vigorous state, but in that feeble, forlorn state which it is in since the fall of man. And therefore Christ is called a tender plant, and a root out of a dry ground. Isaiah 53 verse 2 For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. Thus, as Christ's principal errand into the world was suffering, so agreeable to that errand he came with such a nature, and in such circumstances as most made way for his suffering, so his whole life was filled up with suffering. He began to suffer in his infancy, but his suffering increased the more he drew near to the close of his life. His suffering after his public ministry began was probably much greater than before, and the latter part of the time of his public ministry seems to have been distinguished by suffering. The longer Christ lived in the world, the more men saw and heard of him, the more they hated him. His enemies were more and more engaged by the continuance of the opposition that he made to their lusts, and the devil, having been often baffled by him, grew more and more enraged, and strengthened the battle more and more against him, so that the cloud over Christ's head grew darker and darker as long as he lived in the world till it was in its greatest blackness when it hung upon the cross and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Before this it was exceedingly dark. In a time of his agony in the garden, of which we have an account in the words now read, in which I propose to make the subject of my present discourse, the word agony properly signifies an earnest strife such as his witness and wrestling, running or fighting. And therefore, in Luke 13, verse 24, it says, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. The word in the original translated strive is agonize, to enter in at the straight gate. The word is especially used for that sort of strife which in those days was exhibited in the Olympic Games, 
in which men strove for the mastery in running, wrestling, and other such kinds of exercises, and a prize was set up that was bestowed on the conqueror. Thus, who thus contended were in the language then in use said to agonize. Thus the apostle in his epistle to the Christians of Corinth, a city of Greece, where such games were annually exhibited, says in allusion to the strivings of the combatants, and every man that strives for the mastery. In the original, every one that agonizes is temperate in all things, so that when it is said in the text, the Christ was in an agony, the meaning is that his soul was in a great and earnest strife and conflict. It was so in two respects as the soul was in a great and sore conflict with those terrible and amazing views and apprehensions which he then had. Secondly, as he was at the same time in great labor and earnest strife with God in prayer, I propose, therefore, in discoursing on the subject of Christ's agony distinctly to unfold it under two propositions, that the soul of Christ in his agony in the garden had a sore conflict with those terrible and amazing views and apprehensions of which he was in the subject. Secondly, that the soul of Christ in his agony in the garden had a great and earnest labor and struggle with God in prayer. First, the soul of Christ in his agony in the garden had a sore conflict with those terrible, amazing views and apprehensions of which he was in the subject. In illustrating this proposition, I shall endeavor to show what those views and apprehensions were, that the conflict or agony of Christ's soul was occasioned by those views and apprehensions, that this conflict was peculiarly great and distressing, and finally, what we may suppose to be the special design of God in giving Christ those terrible views and apprehensions and causing him to suffer that dreadful conflict before he was crucified. First, what were those terrible views and amazing apprehensions which Christ had in his agony? This may be explained by considering first the cause of those views and apprehensions, and secondly, the manner in which they were then experienced. The cause of those views and apprehensions which Christ had in his agony in the garden was a bitter cup which he was soon after to drink on the cross. The sufferings which Christ underwent in his agony in the garden were not his greatest sufferings, though they were so very great. But his last sufferings upon the cross were his principal sufferings, and therefore they are called the cup that he had to drink. The sufferings of the cross, under which he was slain, are always in the scriptures represented as the main sufferings of Christ, those in which he especially bore our sins in his own body and made atonement for sin. His enduring the cross, his humbling himself and becoming obedient to death, even the death of the cross is spoken of as the main thing in which his sufferings appeared. This is a cup that Christ had set before him in his agony. It is manifest that Christ had this in view at this time from the prayers which he then offered. According to Matthew, Christ made three prayers that evening while in the Garden of Gethsemane, and all on this one subject, the bitter cup that he was to drink. 
of the first, we have an account in Matthew 26, 39. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Of the second and the forty-second verse, he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass from me except I drink it, your will be done. And of the third and the forty-fourth verse, and he left him and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. From this it plainly appears what it was of which Christ had such terrible views and apprehensions at that time. What he thus insists on in his prayer shows on what his mind was so deeply intent. It was his sufferings on the cross, which were to be endured the next day when there should be darkness over all the earth, and at the same time a deeper darkness over the soul of Christ of which he had now such lively views and distressing apprehensions. Number two, the manner in which this bitter cup was now set in Christ's view. He had a lively apprehension of it impressed at that time on his mind. He had an apprehension of the cup that he was to drink before. His principal errand into the world was to drink that cup. And he therefore was never unthoughtful of it, but always bore it in his mind, and often spoke of it to his disciples. Thus Matthew 16 verse 21 from that time forth began Jesus to show to his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Again, chapter twenty seventeen to 19. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said to them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, to scourge, and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. The same thing was a subject of conversation on the mount with Moses and Elijah when he was first transfigured. So he speaks of the bloody baptism, Luke 12, verse 50. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and oh, I am straightened until it be accomplished. He speaks of it again to Zebedee's children, Matthew 20, verse 22. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say to him, we are able. He seems always to have had it in view. But it seems that at this time, God gave him an extraordinary view of it. A sense of that wrath that was to be poured out upon him, and of those amazing sufferings that he was to undergo, was strongly impressed on his mind by the immediate power of God so they had a far more full and lively apprehensions of the bitterness of the cup which he was to drink than he ever had before. And these apprehensions were so terrible that his feeble human nature shrunk at the sight of it and was ready to sink. Number two, 
The cup of bitterness was now represented as just at hand. He had not only a more clear and lively view of it than before, but it was now set directly before him that he might without delay take it up and drink it. For then, within that same hour, Judas was to come with his band of men, and he was in to deliver up himself into their hands to the end that he might drink this cup the next day, unless indeed he refused to take it, and so made his escape from that place where Judas would come, which he had opportunity enough to do if he had been so minded. Having thus shown what those terrible views and apprehensions were which Christ had in the time of agony, I shall endeavor to show, secondly, that the conflict which the soul of Christ then endured was occasioned by those views and apprehensions. The sorrow and distress which his soul then suffered arose from that lively and full and immediate view which he had then given him of that cup of wrath, by which God the Father did, as it were, set the cup down before him for him to take it and drink it. Some have inquired what was the occasion of that distress and agony, and many speculations there have been about it, but the account which the scripture itself gives us is sufficiently full in this manner, and does not leave room for speculation or doubt. The thing that Christ's mind was so full of at that time was, without doubt, the same with that which his mouth was so full of. It was a dread which his feeble human nature had of that dreadful cup, which was vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. He had then in a near view of that furnace of wrath, in which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. This is a thing that filled his soul with sorrow and darkness. This terrible sight, as it were, overwhelmed him. For what was that human nature of Christ to such mighty wrath as this? It was in itself without the supports of God, but a feeble worm of the dust, a thing that was crushed before the moth. None of God's children ever had such a cup set before them as his first being of every creature had. But not to dwell any longer on this, I hasten to show thirdly that the conflict in Christ's soul in the view of his last sufferings was dreadful beyond all expression or conception. This will appear from what is said of its dreadfulness in the history. By one evangelist we are told he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. And by Mark, and he takes with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. These expressions hold forth the intense and overwhelming distress that his soul was in. Luke's expression in the text of his being in an agony, according to the signification of that word in the original Greek, implies no common degree of sorrow, but such extreme distress that his nature had a most violent conflict with it. It's a man that wrestles with all of his might, with a strong man who labors and exerts his utmost strength to gain a conquest over him. Secondly, from what Christ himself says of it, it was not one to magnify things beyond the truth. 
He says, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. What language can more strongly express a most extreme degree of sorrow? His soul was not only sorrowful, but exceeding sorrowful. And not only so, but because that did not fully express the degree of his sorrow, he adds, even unto death, which seems to intimate that the very pains and sorrows of hell, of eternal death, had got hold upon him. The Hebrews were wont to express the utmost degree of sorrow that any creature could be liable to by the phrase, the shadow of death. Christ had now, as it were, the shadow of death brought over his soul by the near view which he had of that bitter cup that was now set before him. Thirdly, from the effect which it had on his body and causing that bloody sweat that we read of in the text. In our translation, it is said that Luke 22, verse 44, his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The word rendered great drops is in the original a word which properly signifies lumps or clots, for we may suppose that the blood that was pressed out through the pores of his skin by the violence of that inward struggle and conflict that there was when it came to be exposed to the cool air of the night congealed and stiffened as in the nature of blood, and so fell off from him not in drops but in clots. If the suffering of Christ had occasioned merely a violent sweat, it would have shown that he was in great agony, for it must be an extraordinary grief and exercise of mind that causes a body to be all out of a sweat abroad in the open air. In a cold night, as that was, as is evident in John, 18 verse 18, and the servants and officers stood there, had made a fire of coals, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. This is the same night in which Christ had his agony in the garden, but Christ's inward distress and grief was not merely such as caused him to be in a violent and universal sweat, but such as caused him to sweat blood. The distress and anguish of his mind was so unspeakably extreme as to force his blood through the pores of his skin, and that so plentifully as to fall in great clots or drops from his body to the ground. I come now to show what may be supposed to be the special end of God's given Christ beforehand these terrible views of his last sufferings. In other words, why it was needful that he should have a more full and extraordinary view of the cup that he was to drink, a little before he drank it, than ever he had before, or why he must have such a foretaste of the wrath of God to be endured on the cross before the time that he was actually to endure it. The answer is it was needful, in order that he might take the cup and drink it as knowing what he did, unless the human nature of Christ had had an extraordinary view given him beforehand of what he was to suffer, he could not, as man, fully know beforehand what he was going to suffer, and therefore could not, as man, know what he did when he took the cup to drink it, because he would not fully have known what the cup was, it being a cup that he never drank before. If Christ had plunged himself into those dreadful sufferings, 
without being fully sensible beforehand of their bitterness and dreadfulness, he must have done he knew not what. As man he would have plunged himself into sufferings of the amount of which he was ignorant, and so have acted blindfold. And of course as taken upon him these sufferings could not have been so fully his own act. Christ, as God, perfectly knew what these sufferings were, but it was more needful also that he should know them as man, for he was to suffer as man. And the act of Christ in taking that cup was the act of Christ as God-man. But the man Christ Jesus before this never had experience of any of such sufferings as he now was to endure on the cross, and therefore he could not fully know what they were beforehand. But by having an extraordinary view of them set before him, and an extraordinary sense of them impressed on his mind. We have heard of tortures that others have undergone, but we do not fully know what they were because we never experienced them, and it is impossible that we should fully know what they were but in one of these two ways, either by experiencing them, or by having a view given of them, or a sense of them impressed in an extraordinary way. Such a sense was impressed on the mind of the man Christ Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, of his last sufferings, and that caused his agony. When he had a full sight given him, what that wrath of God was that he was to suffer, the sight was overwhelming to him. It made his soul exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath, and it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfolded, if not knowing how dreadful the furnace was. Therefore, that he might not do so, God first brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace, that he might look in and stand and view its fierce and raging flames, and might see where he was going and might voluntarily enter into it, and bear it for sinners, as knowing what it was. This view Christ had in his agony. Then God brought the cup that he was to drink, and set it down before him that he might have a full view of it, and see what it was before he took it and drank it. If Christ had not fully known what the dreadfulness of these sufferings were before he took them upon him, his taking them upon him could not have been fully his own act as man. There could not have been an explicit act of his will about that which he was ignorant of. There could have been no proper trial whether he would be willing to undergo such dreadful sufferings or not, unless he had known beforehand how dreadful they were. But when he had seen what they were by having an extraordinary view given him of them, and then undertaken to endure them afterwards, and he acted as knowing what he did. Then as taking that cup and bearing such dreadful sufferings was properly his own act, by an explicit choice, and so was love to sinners. In that choice of him was a more wonderful, as also his obedience to God in it. And it was necessary that this extraordinary view that Christ had of the cup, he was to drink, should be given at that time, just before he was apprehended. This is the most proper season for it, just before he took the cup, and while he had yet an opportunity to refuse a cup, 
for before he was apprehended by the company led by Judas, he had opportunity to make his escape at his pleasure, for the place where he was was without the city, where he was not all confined, and was a lonesome, solitary place, and it was a night, so that he might have gone from that place where he would, and his enemies would not have known where to find him. This view that he had of the bitter cup was given him while he was yet fully at liberty, before he was given into the hands of his enemies. Christ delivering himself up into the hands of his enemies as he did when Judas came, which was just after his agony, was properly his act of taking the cup in order to drink it. For Christ knew that the issue of that would be his crucifixion the next day. The things may show us the end of Christ's agony, and the necessity there was of such an agony before his last sufferings. Application So we may learn how dreadful Christ's last sufferings were. We learn it from the dreadful effect which the bare foresight of them had upon him in his agony. His last sufferings were so dreadful that the view which Christ had of them before overwhelmed him and amazed him. As it is said, he began to be sore amazed. The very sight of these last sufferings was so very dreadful as to sink his soul down into the dark shadow of death. Yea, so dreadful was it that in the sore conflict which his nature had with it, he was all in a sweat of blood. His body all over was covered with clotted blood. And not only his body, but the very ground under him with the blood that fell from him, which had been forced through his pore through the violence of his agony. And if only the foresight of the cup was so dreadful, how dreadful was the cup itself, how far beyond all that can be uttered or conceived. Many of the martyrs have endured extreme tortures, but from what has been said there is all reason to think those all were a mere nothing to the last sufferings of Christ on the cross. And what has been said affords a convincing argument that the sufferings which Christ endured in his body on the cross, though they were very dreadful, were yet the least part of his last sufferings, and that beside those he endured sufferings in his soul which were vastly greater. For if it had been only the sufferings which he endured in his body, though they were very dreadful, we cannot conceive that the mere anticipation of them would have such an effect on Christ. Many of the martyrs, for aught we know, have endured the severe tortures in their bodies as Christ did. Many of the martyrs have been crucified as Christ was, and yet their souls have not been so overwhelmed. There has been no appearance of such amazing sorrow and distress of mind either at the anticipation of their sufferings or in their actual enduring of them. Secondly, from what has been said, we may see the wonderful strength of the love of Christ to sinners. What has been said shows the strength of Christ's love two ways, that it was so strong as to carry him through that agony that he was in in. The suffering that he then had was actually subject to was dreadful and amazing as has been shown. And how wonderful was his love that lasted and was upheld still, 
The love of any mere man or angel would doubtless have sunk under such a weight, and never would have endured such a conflict and such a bloody sweat as that of Jesus Christ. The anguish of Christ's soul at that time was so strong as to cause that wonderful effect on his body, but his love to his enemies, poor and unworthy as they were, was stronger still. The heart of Christ at that time was full of distress, but it was more full of love to vile worms. His sorrow abounded, but his love did much more abound. Christ's soul was overwhelmed with a deluge of grief, but this was from a deluge of love to sinners in his heart, sufficient to overflow the world and overwhelm the highest mountains of its sins. Those great drops of blood that fell down to the ground were a manifestation of an ocean of love in Christ's heart. Secondly, the strength of Christ's love more especially appears in this, that when he had such a full view of the dreadfulness of the cup, that he was to drink, that so amazed him, he would not withstand and even then take it up and drink it. Then seems to have been the greatest and most peculiar trial of the strength of the love of Christ, when God set down the bitter portion before him and let him see what he had to drink. If he persisted in his love to sinners and brought him to the mouth of the furnace that he might see its fierceness and have a full view of it, and have time then to consider whether he would go in and suffer the flames of this furnace for such unworthy creatures or not. This was, as it were, proposing it to Christ's last consideration, what he would do, as much as if it then been said of him, Here is a cup that you are to drink, unless you will give up your undertaking for sinners, and even leave them to perish as they deserve. Will you take this cup and drink of it for them or not? There's a furnace into which you are to be cast. If they are to be saved, either they must perish or you must endure this for them. There you see how terrible the heat of the furnace is. You see what pain and anguish you must endure on the morrow unless you give up the cause of sinners. What will you do? Is your law such that you will go on? We cast yourself into this dreadful furnace of wrath. Christ's soul was overwhelmed with the thought of it. His feeble human nature shrunk at the dismal sight. It put him into this dreadful agony which you have heard described. But his love to sinners held out. Christ would not undergo these sufferings needlessly if sinners could be saved without them. If there was not an absolute necessity of his suffering them in order to their salvation, he desired that the cup might pass from him. But if sinners on whom he had set his love could not, agreeable to the will of God, be saved without his drinking it, he chose that the will of God should be done. He chose to go on and endure the suffering awful as it appeared to him. And this was his final conclusion. After the dismal conflict of its poor, feeble human nature, after he had had the cup in view, and for at last a space of one hour, had seen how amazing it was, still he finally resolved that he would bear it, rather than those poor sinners whom he had loved from all eternity should perish 
When the dreadful cup was before him, he did not say within himself, Why should I, who am so great and glorious a person, infinitely more honorable than all the angels of heaven, why should I go to plunge myself into such dreadful, amazing torments for worthless, wretched worms that cannot be profitable to God or me, and they deserve to be hated by me and not to be loved? Such was not the language of Christ's heart in those circumstances, but on the contrary, his love held out, and he resolved even then in the midst of his agony to yield up himself to the will of God and to take the cup and drink it. He would not flee to get out of the way of Judas and those that were with him, though he knew they were coming, but that same hour delivered himself voluntarily into their hands.